Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, we'll begin reading at verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our glory to not only study it, but to apply it in our lives. And we want uh, to uh, uh, live it out to the fullest, and we pray that by your spirit you would enable us to do so. Anoint this preaching, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Watson is a Puritan writer that, one of those rare guys that doesn't, really wordy. He, he gets things down to a nub, and if you don't have his book, A Godly Man's Picture, I recommend you pick it up and read it sometime in the next uh, few years, and it, it's an outstanding, outstanding treatise on what the full-orbed Christian life looks like. Now, here's something that he said, discontent keeps a man from enjoying what he doth possess. It's a very interesting observation. I think you've probably witnessed the truth of this many times. You've probably seen a three-year-old playing very happily with a toy until she sees some other kid with a different toy, and all of a sudden, she simply must have that other toy to be happy. Uh, discontent comes in, and she wants to get into a fight with this other kid and take away that toy, and a parent intervenes and says, no, you've got plenty of toys. You need to be playing with your own toy. And that child whines and fusses and cries and looks like she will be utterly miserable if she can't have that other toy. Discontent keeps us from enjoying the things that we already possess. Now, Jesus said that he came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. But we can never enjoy life to the fullest if we don't have the first catechism true of us that our chief goal in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so this morning I want to talk about the elusive secret of contentment. But I also want to show how it is not at all incompatible with God's call that we long for more holiness, that we are pressing after uh, the extension of God's kingdom, that we hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, those things seem to imply a certain kind of discontent that we have within us, 
uh, we're at least discontented with where we are and where our world is. We pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has put within us a holy discontentment with the way things are on planet earth. Anything that is contrary to God or to God's will or to God's goals in history. So which is it? Contentment or lack of contentment? Uh, those two, depending on which sphere you're looking at, can both coexist. But the presence of those two things highlights, I think, a central distinction between a counterfeit contentment and biblical contentment. Counterfeit contentment has no yearnings after God, no longings of the heart for uh, more holiness. Let me read you William Barclay's summary of the Stoic philosophy of contentment uh, and that, this actually had a, a huge impact on some monastics uh, that uh, wanted to deny all desire, and they, they bought into this Greek concept. But I think it'll show you the sharp contrast that there is between the two. He said the Stoics proposed to eliminate all desire. They also proposed to eliminate all emotion until people had reached a stage where they did not care. And by the way, that's a key phrase in Stoic concept of contentment, they don't care. So he said, they, they don't, did not care what happened either to themselves or to anyone else. Epictetus says, begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself, and if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If you go on long enough and if you try hard enough, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. And Barclay goes on to say, the stoic aim was to abolish every feeling of the human heart. Now that's horrible, and <laughs> that's not contentment. That is indifference. There's a big difference between the two. Biblical contentment is compatible with weeping and joy, with sorrow and happiness. So Paul is not talking about a passionless existence. He was a very passionate man, I and mean, he was passionate about life, but he had contentment. The Stoic version of contentment had no initiative, no vision. It basically was a life that had the wind taken out of its sails. But the person with biblical contentment has vision, has longings, and has a heightened capacity to enjoy life. As I said earlier, in John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. A person with biblical contentment can go to a restaurant, like Kathy and I did this past week, and enjoy new experiences and never leave contentment. Okay? And that contrast is confusing to some people. So today's sermon is going to try to answer the questions what is contentment? How do we get biblical contentment? How can we find joy in contentment without becoming passive, without having total lack of initiative? And for that matter, how can we even have contentment when we are facing persecution like the Philippians were? And I thought I would start by describing its opposite, the sinful discontentment. And we see it everywhere. We see it in the movie. We see it in the grocery stores, we, we, we see it in so many different circumstances. You drive down a, an aisle with your cart in the grocery store and you see another cart there with a kid in it. And Man, every, every aisle that they're at, that kid wants something else. And you can see that uh, she is very, very 
desirous of things that she thinks she needs. Uh, this comes up in the comic strips. About every Christmas, there's uh, some comic that deals with a list of things, and it's usually a long, long list that Santa's supposed to bring to them. I think it was in Foxtrot one year, they, the, the kid, the boy, had a box of computer printout paper <laughs> with a long list of his needs. And it's very easy for us adults to turn a list, a catalog, an advertisement, or even a toy that we see some other person have into a reason for discontentment. And suddenly, some of the joy of life is uh, removed, and we're like that child, the first child in your outline, uh, that uh, has, you know, misery. Has, uh, we want something, and we're not getting it, and we feel frustrated. Now, I was going to say more on point one, but I think it's fairly obvious by now. This contentment does not come naturally. Verse 11 says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Now, when you understand the kind of poor states that the Apostle Paul was in, that's remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Think about his circumstances. Paul was a prisoner in Caesarea when he wrote the book of Philippians, at least on the chronology that, that, that I uh, have adopted, and yet he had learned to say, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That's radical. Four years earlier... Uh, he told the Corinthians, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. He was living on the edge of death continually, and yet he learned to say, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. One year later, in 2 Corinthians 6, he chronicled his life in this way, in much endurance, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. Could Paul really have meant that he had contentment in those circumstances, you know? Maybe this is hyperbole. Please, let it be hyperbole. You know, this seems uh, like this is impossible. And yet Paul in that chapter said, no, I had learned contentment even in those circumstances. How is that possible? In 2 Corinthians 11... He said, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, deep concern for all the churches. And so if you're excusing your lack of contentment because of how life has been so difficult for you. Think about Paul's life. And I'm not bringing this up to discourage you because this is not something you can produce in your own self anyway. This is a gift of God's supernatural grace. And if God's grace was sufficient to make the Apostle Paul contented in those circumstances, his grace is sufficient for you as well. Now, if you take a look at verse 12, uh, there is a word there that shows how foreign this is to the natural realm. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. 
Everywhere and in all things, here's the phrase, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now that verb, I have learned, is a fascinating uh, Greek uh, verb. It's uh, more literally translated in the NIV, I have learned the secret. It's the Greek word memuemai from mueo, and it was a word that was used by the mystery religions to talk about being initiated into their secrets, uh, learning their secrets. And so uh, Paul was taking, that's the only definition, by the way, in my massive dictionary. It's one definition, to have learned some secrets or be initiated into secrets. And so Paul had learned, he had somehow been initiated into secrets, and that word all by itself shows this is not something natural. This is something that we have to go to Jesus Christ for. It is supernatural. Now, to get an idea of what this grace looks like, what I've done is I've listed six supernatural graces that always accompany it. And the first grace is joy. Now, this whole book is just filled with references to the joy of the Lord that he had and he was encouraging his congregation to have. Uh, He speaks of his joy in verse 10 even though he was in prison. But in verse 4, he says that we must rejoice in the Lord always. I think every one of us can say we rejoice in the Lord. But it takes contentment to be able to say that we rejoice in the Lord always. The child who has learned this contentment can find joy in playing with uh, her toy and Be joyful even when her sibling is playing with a toy that is much better than hers. Not feeling frustrated at all over that. Uh, The truly contented person is not ruffled by circumstances. He does not say, if only God would let me get married, or maybe be married to a different spouse, if only I could have more money, if only God would give me parents, then I could be joyful. Paul says, no. His joy comes from God. It was not dependent upon his circumstances at all. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2 gives this remarkable phrase. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy was manifested. At the previous church that I served at, one of the elders from time to time would ask me, Phil, do you still have the joy of the Lord? Uh, He recognized that is a good barometer of where my walk with God uh, was at. And if we think, well, I'd be more joyful if I didn't have all of these afflictions in my life, then we need to remind ourselves of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy was manifested. And again, I'm not saying this to make you guilty. There's no point in feeling guilty because this is not something that we can produce on our own. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm trying to instill in you a deep heart longing to be entering more and more into the inheritance that Jesus Christ has already purchased for you. It's laid up for you in the heavenlies. It's there for you uh, to receive. Biblical contentment is supernatural And we must get it supernaturally from the Lord. Now, that's the last point that we'll be looking at in a a moment. But here, I'm trying to make the point, if you don't have that kind of supernatural joy and in even difficult circumstances, the likelihood is that you still need the secret of being initiated into the, the, um, the contentment that Paul talks about. Verse 5 speaks of gentleness. This is another grace that is almost always seen as present with contentment. 
Let your gentleness be known to all men. Well, Paul has a way of being difficult. Uh, if he had simply said, let your gentleness be known, we could say, hey, that's me. Uh, I'm at least occasionally gentle, especially when I'm asleep. Uh, but um, Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all men. That includes the kids that you're ready to wail into. That includes the spouse who has pushed your button. Harshness flows from a spirit that is frustrated and lacks contentment. So if you don't have gentleness, the likelihood is that you need to be initiated into the secret of Paul's contentment. Now again, I'm giving this preparatory material so you can examine your heart to, to see, Lord, is this something I need to be receiving from your throne? Is there something I am missing out on? One of the things that Paul had learned to put off was anxiety. Now, those of you who have known me for a number of years know this has been my besetting sin. I constantly need to be guarding my heart against anxiety. It's something I've struggled with my whole life. And Philippians 4, 6 through 9, gives three steps that enable us to enter more and more into the supernatural peace that guards our hearts against anxiety. Three simple steps he tells us we need to pray rightly, we need to think rightly, and we need to act rightly. Now, we're not content with those three simple steps. Instead, we're trying to add a whole bunch of steps that aren't biblical at all. For example, uh, we think that if we could only have a salary that was $30,000 more, we would no longer have anything to be anxious about. And Paul says, no, no. Be anxious for nothing, and that includes your finances. We might think, that anxiety might leave us if we could only live in less tense times or have better health or better neighbors or you can fill in the blank, whatever it is that makes you anxious. The very things that make us anxious are also things that are in some way tied to discontentment. And we think, yeah, but I, I wouldn't be anxious if I had something different. But I think you can see there is a connection. Same is true of the peace that verse 7 calls us to have. How could Paul have peace of mind and of soul when he was locked up in jail. Well, Paul says, if you've got the presence of the Lord in your life, you're going to have peace, and with that peace, you're going to have contentment as well. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, it's a peace you cannot describe in purely psychological terms. That peace will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So if you have learned the secret to that supernatural peace, you probably have the secret to having contentment because these are graces that are all linked together very tightly. They're supernatural graces that come from walking in the Spirit. There's a similar connection with patience. Verse 10 has the phrase, at last. And commentators indicate uh, there was a long wait for Paul, three years to be specific, if he was writing this epistle from Caesarea. It was ten years if he was writing this from his last stay in Rome. Uh, and he was patiently waiting between the first financial support that the Philippian church sent to him and the second gift that he was talking about. But Paul's contentment enabled him to wait patiently. Now, another way of looking at this, and there are other references to patience in this book, but another way of looking at this is if you are discontented, automatically you're going to be impatient. You can't have one without the other. Now, why do I say that gratitude is tied to contentment? Well, contentment does not mean that Paul was not 
rejoicing and new things that came his way, the very fact that he was contented made him appreciative of the new gift that came to him without having that um, clouded by the negative emotions that could have clouded his appreciation if he had, for example, anxiety or impatience or had the thought that people owed him something. The contented person is the most likely to be grateful for the gifts that he knows he has no right to expect. So what is the secret to contentment and all of these accompanying graces? Well, the key is possessing God himself. In chapter 1, verse 21, Paul said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we have put our trust in Jesus, Jesus ushers us into a relationship uh, with God, a friendship with God. He becomes our new passion, and you rejoice in what He gives because He has given it. And you're able to rejoice in what He has taken away because you know even what He takes away is going to be for your gain. The reason you know it is because of Romans 8.28, that all things work together for your good, even your losses. Uh, and, and the illustration he gives here is death. Most people think of death as the ultimate loss. I mean, you're losing everything visible. But because Paul was united to Jesus, even death was gained to him because it ushered him into the glorious, incredible inheritance of heaven that Jesus has purchased for us. Why don't you take a look at uh, chapter 3 and verses 8 through 14. Paul says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. If you have Christ, you have everything you need for life and for eternity. And even when everything is taken away from you, you're going to be content. He goes on, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul is saying contentment begins at salvation. When we realize we have been rescued from hell, we're destined to heaven simply because we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then everything else takes on a new perspective. There isn't anything so bad in life that it isn't a whole lot better than the torments of hell. And there isn't anything so wonderful in life that it pales in insignificance to the glories of heaven. When we realize we have been rescued from slavery to sin and slavery to Satan, and we have been adopted into God's family and are counted as righteous in Jesus, there isn't anything in life that we would trade for that. When we realize we were once alienated from God, we were enemies of God, but now uh, we have been, through Jesus, brought into friendship with God, then we realize that uh, we have nothing in life to complain about. In Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. He connects us to God, and the overflow of all of God's joy and love and wisdom and power and satisfaction in life. So don't settle for the counterfeit virtues in Bennett's book of virtues. Go for the real thing. That's why Paul says, from the moment of conversion and onwards, his goal and passion in life was chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. When verse 10 becomes your passion, knowing Jesus and his power, then you have the key to contentment. So let's examine that. If you, do you have any needs? 
Well, if you have Jesus, your needs will be provided in his perfect timing. Chapter 4, verse 19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Do you lack love for others? Well, Philippians 1.9 says, God is able to make your love to abound still more and more. He can enable you to love the unlovable. Do you struggle as you seek to overcome your besetting sins? Philippians 2.13 tells us that it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, that's not simply theory. It's very easy for us to put that into our heads as theory. This is the reality of God's supernatural presence in our lives. Now, it doesn't happen automatically. Even for us believers, uh, if we are not walking in God's Spirit, it is impossible for us to experience the overflow of His life. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that 1 Corinthians 10 tells us we need to put off complaining, grumbling, and murmuring because those things will kill faith. They rob us of that life more abundant that flows from the Holy Spirit. So we need to put off, put off any of the negative emotions that kill our faith and uh, if we don't, we become like that little girl in picture number one. She becomes the picture of us. Now, let me tell you an adult story that you can perhaps relate to. Tom and Mabel Willie were missionaries in the village of El Valle, uh, Panama. And uh, when they first moved there, they lived in a mud hut with a thatched grass roof and uh, a dirt floor. And uh, Mabel had never experienced this kind of... Uh, poverty before. She's thinking, a dirt floor? And uh, Tom was off and out and about visiting the Indians, so she was stuck at home taking care of the kids. And she didn't have any of the conveniences that she was used to having. They didn't have a decent stove, a decent bed, decent floor, decent diapers, decent anything. And it was starting to get to her. And the other thing that was starting to get to her was her lack of privacy. They were kind of a curiosity in that village, and people would come around and stare at her, and she didn't, wasn't able yet to speak the language very well. And so that was getting on her nerves at all, as well. And then the children, when they would come in from playing, they had these little brown insects all over them, and she was picking these insects off their skin, having to use kerosene to dab at the insects. Everything was poor and grimy. One evening, after the children were in bed, Mabel was so overcome with emotion that she ran outside, sat down on a stump, and just bawled her eyes out, cried to God, and said, Lord, why are you doing this to me? She said, Lord, all I ever wanted was a beautiful home. Is this my beautiful home, this mud hut with a thatched roof and creatures falling from the ceiling? And what about my children? Can I bear this for them? And kneeling down by the stump, she continued weeping and praying to God. And suddenly it seemed as if the Lord spoke to her and said this, Can you not live in this mud hut for me? Remember what I have done for you. And it suddenly flooded over her everything that God had done for her. He had provided so many blessings. He, she wasn't focusing on those. All she was focusing on was her endless needs. And needs are that way. They are endless. doesn't matter how many needs you fulfill. There's going to be other needs, quote-unquote, that you're going to find there. And she realized that she had so much more than the natives. She had salvation. She had plenty of food. She had God's protection. And her heart was touched to the point where she said this, Yes, Lord, I can live in this mud hut for you. I give my desire... For a beautiful home, I give my children, my husband, all of us to you. Do with me what you will. And she later recalled the, the change that came over her. She wrote, 
Suddenly, peace surrounded me. I rose from my knees, and that mud hut might have been imagined since my Lord had placed me there. It looked altogether different to my eyes. I saw what could be done to make it a home. I thought of the verse, two men looked through prison bars, one saw mud, the other saw stars. God showed me the stars. Now what was it that ushered her into that supernatural peace and contentment and satisfaction? I mean, just moments before, she didn't have it. She had the exact opposite. There was this sudden change in her life. What ushered her into that? And I want to outline some of those reasons for you because they're the same things that Paul talks about in chapter 4 of this book. Verse 1 says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. The needs of life were drawing Mabel's heart away from the Lord and into complaining. By faith, she reversed it. What she did, she stood fast in the Lord... And what that was, was as an act of your will where you refuse to do what your emotions are telling you to do and you stand like a soldier in faithfulness to God. Hebrews calls it the obedience of faith. It's an action of faith. Secondly, God helped her to again appreciate the people who were around her that were irritating her, people whom God died for, people who were loved just as unconditionally as God had loved her. In verse 1, Paul modeled an unconditional love. And in verses 2 through 3, he encouraged them to imitate his love in their relationship with each other. He says, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Apparently, they were irritating each other. They'd had a quarrel. And Paul was saying, I want you two to think of each other as in the Lord. Think like this. I am embraced by Jesus. I'm united to Jesus. She's united to Jesus. And we need to be embracing all who are united to Jesus. And as I treat her, I am treating Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When you feel like you need a break from difficult people, It helps to remind yourself of how God looks at them. Their names are written in the book of life just like yours are. And we are called to embrace all whom Christ embraces. Give them the same forgiveness, the same love that God has given to us. The third thing she did was to give over to God the things that she thought would bring her joy and to seek her joy from God's presence. So she gave to God her desires for a house. She gave to God her husband and her children and herself and everything that she had. She gave it to the Lord. And that's the only way it is possible to obey verse 4 and to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, if we reverse that, we try to find our joy in creation. Instead of in the Lord, we are involving ourselves in idolatry. And we all know that God never lets his children be content if they're finding joy in idolatry, right? So we're not going to have that contentment. Automatically, our face is going to be like the face of that little girl in picture number one. Now, when we submit to God and we give everything we are and have to the Lord, Mark chapter 10 says, God trusts us in his stewardship, in our stewardship, and he says he will give the same things we have given to him back to us 100-fold, 100-fold. 
The fourth thing that Mabel did was to stop lashing out at the unfairness of people, the unfairness of circumstances, and the unfairness of God himself. And instead of lashing out, she quieted herself before the Lord and left things in his hands, the results. Verse 5 talks about that. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So don't lash out. Leave it in God's hands. The fifth thing she did was to adjust the way that she prayed. And this was a radical adjustment because her first prayer was bitter complaining against the Lord. It was grumbling. So where was her focus? Her focus was on all the things that she was lacking. That's where her focus was on. She was complaining, and we know God doesn't tend to listen to grumbling. Take a look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When you fret in prayer, you aren't praying in faith. You're not going to be grateful or thankful. But when you offer up prayer and uh, supplication with thanksgiving, it's impossible to grumble. In fact, the more you thank God for who He is, the the greater the likelihood you're going to be entering into that joy and that contentment. Too many times when we pray, the problem is... We're focusing on the problems. We're not focusing on the greatness of the God who can resolve our problems and the goodness of the God who can resolve our problems. But God is honored to meet our needs, all of our needs, whether it's joy, contentment, or physical needs, when we adjust our prayer life. Look at verse 7. This is the result of praying rightly. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The sixth thing that Mabel Woolley did was to adjust the way that she thought. Now, in her particular adjustment, it was beginning to see her sacrifices as a gift to God. Uh, She thought God was saying, can you not live in this mud hut for me? Do it for me. Well, she loved the Lord, and she thought, well, if God receives this as a gift from my hand, I I make any sacrifice for the Lord if he takes it as a gift from me. So it was adjusting uh, her thinking. And your thinking might need to be adjusted in several places. And one of the things I usually encourage people to do when they lack contentment is to write down in one column all of the negative thoughts that are killing their faith, all of the complaining, the things that they're grumbling about, and then in the right-hand column to write down the positive things that will stir up faith uh, in their lives. So that's... uh, uh, Chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So if you're struggling with this sermon, that's what I would encourage you to do. Put off all of the negative thinking. Make a list of things you're going to meditate upon. You're going to confess verbally to yourself, self, you know, and you start saying these positive affirmations that build your faith. The seventh thing that Mabel did was to own up to her bad attitudes and to take responsibility for her actions. Verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The eighth thing she did was to submit to God's will and to his timing. She said, do with me what you will. That's submission. Well, Paul had the same attitudes, and you can see submission all the way through this book. But in verse 10, he submitted to God's timing. 
Chapter 1, he submitted to the way in which God was causing the gospel to advance. Uh, there were people who, would, who, were lo- who loved Paul who were advancing it, and there were people who were working against Paul, but they were preaching the true gospel. And Paul said there, either way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. And there were other examples in this book of his submission to God's will. When we are willing to submit... God delights in filling our hearts with peace and joy and contentment. And that's what Mabel automatically found when God became her chief possession. She submitted to his will and to his timing. The ninth thing that she did was to adjust her thinking from needs to God and what God wanted. And it's odd, but I've discovered this in my own life as well. When I have focused on my needs, I have become discontented. Maybe I don't have the facial expression of that girl in the picture, but my heart's been there uh, when I focused on the needs. When I focus on the Lord, uh, the contentment comes back. And in the same way, Paul said, not that I speak in regard to need. Now, he had the need, but that's not where his focus was. His focus was on Christ. John MacArthur has pointed out that our culture has become a needs-driven culture. Advertising even creates needs we didn't even know existed. We didn't even know that that iPad even existed before we saw the advertisement for it, right? Now, there are millions of women who didn't know that they should be liberated. They didn't want to be liberated, but for the last hundred years, they've been told, you need to be liberated. There are tons of, of, uh, of young people who had no desire initially to be impure, but they were told that their ego will be repressed if they are not sexually liberated. We are told that our children need their own bedrooms. We need privacy and a host of other things that would have mystified our forefathers. There's a popular book out there for married couples called His Needs, Her Needs. It's a needs-based book that indicates if our needs aren't met, we're not going to have a happy marriage. Okay? Psychology, psychiatry, almost every version of it is built upon some needs-driven approach to life. And um, the Bible assures us it will be impossible to find contentment when your focus is on needs rather than on the Lord. So Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need. If all that we are and all that we have is wrapped up in God and in His kingdom, the opposite of Christianity then is to be wrapped up in ourselves. Paul was wrapped up in something that was far larger than himself. When he was writing this epistle, I've already mentioned that Paul was in prison, saying that he had everything that he needed to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Everything. He said, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Paul was saying, hey, I've got a little food, I've got some clothing, I've got a blanket and a place to lie down. And you know, to think about it, I've got some soldiers to protect me from marauders. I've got free room and board. I've got a roof over my head. Hey, and I've got a captive audience of soldiers who have to listen to my witnessing. And uh, that's why in chapter 1 of Philippians, he says there's even some people from the centurion guard who have been witnessing to people in Caesar's household. There's members of Caesar's household who have come to Christ because I've been in jail uh, in this location here. And so... uh, What he was saying there is, yes, I am content because needs don't drive me. I've got a servant's heart that looks to responsibility to God. I'm a servant of God, and it's not needs, it's God who drives me. Tenth, 
Mabel Willie's response to God's statement, remember what I have done for you, was to realize how ungrateful she had been for the incredible blessings of the Lord. She'd forgotten them. Now, I've teased apart the various strands of what Mabel did into ten different things, but it all happened in a moment of time. It was all just a simple prayer of submission to God and a faith in His goodness. And so while understanding what happened might be a little bit more complicated, that's why I've kind of teased it apart for you, your ability to enter into Mabel's contentment, into Paul's contentment, is incredibly simple. Thessalonians refers to it as an act of turning from idols to serve the living God. Okay? It is possessing God as your chief possession. And and putting faith in Christ, submitting your life to Him. When you possess the Creator of all things, you don't need to worry about those all things. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now let me conclude by saying that we really do need to remind ourselves of these truths every single day. It's the pathway to joy. Now you would think If you had experienced the remarkable, supernatural presence of the Lord in your life like Mabel did, you would never struggle with this issue again. But we do. As many times as I've experienced God's supernatural joy, His supernatural peace, I find myself wandering into dryness just like David did. The pull of this world is so strong upon us that we need to daily fight for this contentment in the Lord God. It's a daily fight to possess our chief possession, God, and to find joy and satisfaction in Him. And so if you are that little girl, that first picture in your outlines, and you're miserable because you don't have something, you see a toy that somebody else has, and if that discontentment has robbed you of your joy, please put on the principles that we have looked at uh, today and be renewed in Him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and the guidance that it gives to us. We thank you that your desire for us is that we might have life and have it more abundantly. We thank you for your promise in the gospel of John that uh, you give to your people fullness of joy. And Father, if our cup of joy is not overflowing this morning, we pray that it would be a sign that we need to go back to the joy giver, to you, the fountain of all goodness, the fountain of all grace. Help each one here to be renewed in you and your grace. No matter what the difficulties that they face, may they not uh, be robbed of uh, the joy, the contentment, and the peace that flows from your throne. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.